Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Glad to have you all on board this holiday season. Uh, Jim Marty reporting from Longmont, Colorado. I've got my partner up in Illinois, Larry Mishkin. Jim, how you doing today? Uh, all is good here in Chicago. Sunny, 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 but cold, cold, cold. And we get up to the mid-50s and sunny today, so went oh, for God. run walk with our son, whose 23rd birthday is today. Nice. Congratulations. He's got a really hot band. They're trying to get a record contract. They're putting the final touches on their first CD. Their band is called Squerve. S-Q. Squerve. Oh, I like that name. Okay, fine. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of some symbols they could do like a kind of an S thing. Mm -hmm. I said the uh, skull and the circle are taken. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, yeah, they're sounding real good. I encourage our uh, folks out there to check them out on Facebook and other social media. For sure. That's a good thing to do. Yeah. It's always nice to have a little in-house music. Yeah. yeah, keyboards and vocals for Jack, our son. Excellent. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's, are they playing? I'm sorry, now, did you say they are playing a New Year's show? No, their next show is in February, oh. if it happens. Okay. Let me ask you a question, Jim. I was talking to our good friend Bob Hoban the other day, and he happened to mention to me that Dark Star Orchestra just played in the Denver area indoors with limited, uh, limited capacity. Huh. Were you aware of that? No, I missed that. Mm. Bob really raved about it because apparently since they limited the number of people in, your ticket got you a table for four, a high top. And they had the high top strategically located with circles on the floor. And within your area, you could sit at your high top. You could stand up and dance. You could text your drinks to the bar. It sounded like a great time. I, I don't remember the name of the, the, the venue where, where it was at. Um, but uh, he was just telling me about that the other day. And that was great to hear that, uh, you know, that there are some alternatives and some people that are putting some live music out there for us where you can actually show up and, uh, and see it. And, you know, look, especially this time of year, anybody who's a deadhead at all uh, starts to get an itch because we all think of the New Year's shows and we all think of, uh, you know, how great it was. I, did you ever make it to a New Year's show, Jim? Yes. Back in the um, late 1980s, pre-kids. Mm -hmm. In fact, I wasn't even less. It might have been uh, 86, 87. Mm -hmm. I was there that year. Yeah, we drove out to Oakland. To yep. the car trip since we didn't have any kids excellent yeah i was there got 84 85 86 87 88 89 uh at least three times one year i saw them in the bill graham uh, uh well now it's called the bill graham center the the san francisco civic center and then the other two times were over at the uh the coliseum in oakland but i always remember whenever i was there for a new year's show even before, you know, the music before midnight, but then especially as they're doing the countdown, I, I just always remember stopping and thinking, where else in the world would a deadhead ever want to be on New Year's Eve other than in a Grateful Dead show and cheering in the New Year's with your favorite band and with like-minded people and everybody just having a great time. And, uh, you know, then after kids came along and, and that kind of travel uh uh, wasn't feasible. Um, you know, you could, there was always a local radio station that would broadcast the show and you could always still pick it up. And, you know, I'd be sitting in one room, uh, trying not to turn it up too loud. My wife would be asleep. The baby would be asleep and I'd be dancing around the living room like an idiot, uh, you know, with the music really soft. So I didn't wake anybody else up, but, uh, 
it's hard to, you know, it, even to this day, you know, with Jerry gone for as many years as he's been gone and everything else. Now I know that for, for my son and, 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 and maybe yours as well, uh, fish has filled that void very nicely. And for the last God, three or four years, I think my son, Matthew and his whole crew have been, uh, in Madison square garden to end the new year and down the old year and bring in the new year. And fish always plays, of you know, four or five shows over that stretch. And, uh, everybody gets a chance to, you know, uh, really start their new year off the right way. But of course they're not doing it this year either. So, um, you know, de- fish heads are in the same boat as deadheads this year. Yes, and um, I have been to New Year's shows in Madison Square Garden, New Year's with Fish, and uh, our older son um, has been there um, in New York City for New Year's, and his friends were saying, oh, I don't know if I want to spend $150 to go see Fish, and he said, what else can you do in New York City for five hours for $150? (laughs) And be having the time of your life, right? You know, yeah. that's, uh, you know, you can spend a lot of money and, you know, get a special place in line to go into a museum, but then you're just walking around all day trying not to fall asleep, right? Here you are, yeah, rocking out with, um, you know, the, the the band that has de facto become the jam band to be with and, you know, to be at, and it's great. You know, it, it really is a lot of fun. But this year, I think I, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to watch uh, uh, Bob Weir with uh, Wolf Brothers because that includes uh, Don Wass on bass. He's great. I really like him a lot. And Jay Lane, who um, does a lot of uh, drumming for Rat Dog. Um, and I think he's also played with Primus from time to time. Um, but apparently and this is to me the the killer uh for sure jeff Comenti is going to be playing with them and uh you know jeff Comenti. uh i feel that if jerry had lived and they had met jeff Comenti, that they might have optioned vince welnick out of the band and put jeff Comenti in the band uh because he's that you know he, he 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 feels like he was the grateful dead's keyboard player even though he never played a single moment with them um, but, uh, of all of the various musicians that Phil and Bobby have, you know, brought on board and, and played with over the years, uh, I think that Comenti, you know, has, has the most dead cred, if you will, and just has that feel. He's amazing to hear on the keyboards and, uh, I'm a big fan of his. Yes. And, um, his vocals really fit in too. They do, which is great. You know, it's, uh, and, and that's nice. Um, the people underestimate Brent Midland and how important his vocals were, I think, to the band. Uh, um, you know, before that, I mean, you can go back to Pigpen, but he wasn't really so much of a keyboard player. Um, and, uh, um, Keith Gauchow was primarily just a piano player, although, uh, it is interesting that uh, he does sing on, um, let me sing your blues away. That's Keith Gaucho singing vocals. And I think it may be one of the only songs that he ever sings vocals on. Um, but every time I listen to it now, I get a little kick out of it because I always wondered what Keith Gaucho would sound like. And, uh, and there he is. That's, that's his voice. Um, but then Brent came along and I think that Brent changed everything behind the keyboards with his singing and, and his pushing and, uh, um, the night that they broke out Dear Mr. Fantasy for the first time, and we were all, a whole group of us were at that show at Red Rocks in uh, June of 1984. And yep. uh, the, they had been playing, they, they came out of space into it, I want to say. Uh, they were just jamming and jamming and jamming and jamming. And all of a sudden, 
Brent starts singing Dear Mr. Fantasy, and the band wasn't really quite behind him 100% yet. Yep, but instead of backing there. down, he doubled down and he started playing it harder. And Jerry caught up and, and started singing it with him. And the whole place just went up for grabs. And yeah. uh, he had that ability, I think, to really inspire Jerry. You know, you always see these photos of Jerry standing, you know, with Brent right in the background. And they're both grinning ear to ear and, you know, playing up a storm. And, uh, of course, the unfortunate side of that is, is that they both had a very common interest outside of music, which was, unfortunately, heroin. And... Um, it took both of them long before their time. And I think Brent had really just was coming into his own as the eighties went into the nineties. And uh, uh, what's so funny about it is we all sat there when we would go to shows with Brent and say, well, he's great, but boy, can you imagine if we could have seen a show with Keith Gauchow, how amazing that would have been. And, you know, in the early nineties, when my, my youngest brother was in college and I went to visit him and they were listening to a tape of a show at Syracuse that I had happened to be at back in 82 or 83. And the very first thing they said about it when they turned to me was, you saw Brent Midland live. And I remember thinking, yeah, you know, I did. And it, at first I wanted to kind of laugh it off, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, I mean, Brent was, he was pretty amazing. I loved him. Was 84 Red Rocks the year they did 2 PM shows? No, no, they, uh, the, the highlights of 84 was that the second night they had a horrendous, horrendous hailstorm and then a huge torrential downpour. And, uh, my wife, then my girlfriend, we were driving her new Ford Taurus hatchback with a, three or four other people jammed into it. Uh, and we were on one of those commercial strips, you know, on highway 70, just east of Red Rocks. And uh, as we were driving, trying to get down to the highway, the, the hailstorm hit and there was nowhere to go. Uh, you know, all cars were jammed under the overpass, so there was nowhere to go there. And we, we wound up just pulling off into a parking lot and eventually it smashed out the back of the uh, of the hatchback, the glass. Mm. And uh, so we had to go back. You know, we were there trying to pull all the glass out. We got a bunch mm. of tarps and we taped them up. And of course, we just went to the show because, you know, we're not going to miss the show. <laughs> and we got there in the middle of the first set and it was you know, still raining pretty good. But what was amazing about it was during the intermission, it slowed down. And then um, in the second set, they were playing um, Ship of Fools. And at the end of the Ship of Fools, when they were just kind of noodling away and Jerry was just jamming and jamming and jamming, and you could look up and you could see the moon was finally coming out from the clouds, right? The clouds were finally going away. And here was the moon, this big, beautiful moon. And Jerry kept jamming. And, you know, this is one of those nights where you really just believe in stuff because the moon was behind him. He couldn't see it. He was facing the crowd. And yet he played, he played, and he hit the last note of the song just as the clouds moved away and the, the moon, the full moon came out and, uh, you know, the place just went crazy. And, uh, uh, yeah, the magic of it was amazing. And then the next night they broke out Dear Mr. Fantasy. But what was funny about it was that it was Flag Day and they had already played U.S. Blues the first night of the three night set. And here they were on the third night. It was Flag Day. And Bobby got up and gave some little speech about, you know, it's however many years ago they approved the flag. Sorry for those of you where they were here the other night. And they played U.S. Blues again. And it was pretty funny. We had a great time. It was it was amazing. Mm-hmm. So that was 84. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. That was the year I started my business. I made two out of three of those shows. I had some business that interfered. Um, I actually skipped a show to take a course called How to Build a Million Dollar CPA Firm by okay. Jefferson. And that course, even though I missed a Grateful Dead show at Red Rocks, 
that course changed the whole trajectory of my business. Well, my there you go. Six months old at the time. And that gave me some really good direction. Chris Fredrickson said, Jim, get out of your house. Don't have an office in your house. Find a lawyer in your hometown who has an extra office and they'll send you business. And that was when my business really started to take off and get traction. That's awesome. Okay. So but what was the year? It was and because of the hailstorms and such, 84. So 85, there was no shows, right? Because Jerry had a tooth. Uh, right. Right, yeah, Jerry had. And then eighty six. No, 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 eighty six was Jerry's coma. Okay, then eighty five was the daytime shows. Okay, that could be yeah, uh, yeah. Eighty five was their twentieth anniversary. And they were going to try to avoid the hailstorms by playing at two p.m. The shows were over at six p.m., so you had the whole night to party. It was great. Uh, now look, I when I was out in, uh, in I know '85 they played because I was at the Greek Theater that year for the official 20th anniversary shows, and what I loved about it was the first night they started at 7 p.m., the second night they started at 5 p.m., and the third day they started at 3 p.m. and they just kept gradually getting earlier and earlier, and uh, it, yeah, it was tremendous. And on the third day, by the time they were done, you know, it was still uh, you know twilight out and. Uh, it was a whole different feel instead of the first night, you know, when you came stumbling out of there and, you know, in the middle of the night, but daytime shows were great. Yeah. No, it was, it's so fun. Those daytime shows. Absolutely. Yep. And, and then once at the, uh, at, at, I think it was at Woodstock, I want to say they played really early in the morning or maybe that was the us festival. And one of these places, it was the us festival. I was there. Oh, okay. So yeah, they played like nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. That was quite the festival that Grateful Dead opened at nine or 10 in the morning. Fleetwood Mac, Jimmy Buffett, Jackson Brown. Wow. It was, a, I had a great only there for one day, but it was a great day. That's a great day. Indeed. It was clearly 1982. Yes, it was. Uh, my wife, Maureen and I were on our honeymoon. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's a great way to spend your honeymoon. And I had just spent the summer in California uh, and seen my first Grateful Dead shows at Ventura Beach, uh, Ventura County Beach Grounds, Fairgrounds that summer. And uh, we were heading back east, unfortunately, right before the US Festival, my buddy and I. Um, and so uh, we weren't able to stick around and 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 catch the shows uh, and see the dead, which at that point all of a sudden became the primary attraction for me. Well, <clears throat> we do have some marijuana things to talk about, but before we do... Um get caught up with Larry and that I got for Christmas the 50th anniversary edition of American Beauty and it is great um, you know so many of these songs on here there's 10 songs and at least five of them have become true classics now I'm more into the rock and roll so don't take this the wrong way for all you people who like uh, Operator and Candyman uh, broke down palace, but uh, or addicts of my life. Box <laughs> of rain, friend of the devil, sugar magnolia, ripple to start side two. Then trucking is the last song. So there you have five out of the ten became favorites of mine and also true classics that were played for decades. Yep. Well, that's the look. We've talked about this before. And had the Grateful Dead done nothing other than play the way they played in the late 1960s, 
uh, I think they would have still left their mark on rock and roll, but at somewhere along the way in the seventies, they wouldn't have been so relevant anymore. And, uh, and that kind of a thing, but they had the foresight, whether it was, you know, their own tu- intuition or whether it was, uh, you know, just being in the right place at the right time that just as, you know, the, the, the psychedelic scene was slowly beginning to come to an end and they were making this major pivot into real songwriting. And I think that you can draw a real line there to Robert Hunter really becoming actively involved with the band sure. um, and uh, 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 John Barlow and, uh, 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 and Bob Weir starting to write tunes. I think a lot of those we saw, we see come out on working man's as well. Um, but American beauty is an amazing album and it, it, it stands on its own as, as a classic rock and roll album that I would argue any fan of rock and roll, you know, if, if you're going to have one album of every band that's ever, you know, out there, that this is the album you're going to have. If, you know, if you're a, if you're a psychedelic, whatever person, then you're going to want to have live dead. But if you're not, you're going to want to have American beauty and or working man's because, you know, I mean, you don't, see, you don't see a lot of bands out there and we can sit and talk about, you know, the greatest rock and roll bands of all time, but this level of, lyrics that are written by Robert Hunter and the music put to it by Jerry Garcia and, and the sustainability of these songs, uh, you know, radio stations still play a lot of these songs when, you know, whenever they're just, you turn on to any classic music and besides listening to the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, you're just as likely to hear trucking or sugar Magnolia. And, uh, you know, every time I do, it's just, it's great because you say to yourself, these guys are great and you know it just takes me back to uh my good buddy trey anastasio right where he would be if he had robert hunter writing lyrics for him yes and some of the many you know things that i can comment on here is you know the this is just considered a absolute classic and when i was at umass in the 1970s i think this was in every record collection on, on my floor with the beautiful cover art. And um, there's so much uh, to it. The double uh, CDs that come with it, the show from 218 of 71. Yes. Which is in public for the first time, a lot of these shows. So the 50th anniversary edition is really cool because it has this show, which has a lot of the songs from American Beauty and Working Man's Dead on a, a very long um, two-set show that comes with the 50th anniversary uh, edition. And um, they premiered, I read the liner notes yesterday, they premiered five songs for the first time ever at this show, 218 of 71. They premiered Warfrey, Playing in the Band, Bertha, Greatest Story Ever Told, and Loser. Now here, let's just stop for one minute there, because, you know, that would be like the equivalent of going to see the Rolling Stones and on one night having them play Satisfaction and Jumping Jack Flash and, you know, whatever, like, you know, the the five greatest songs that they play. I mean, uh, you know, people might say Losers a little, you know, a little more out there for the more sophisticated Dead fans, but any Grateful Dead fan who's seen them, you know, multiple times will tell you that a beautiful loser played by Jerry on any given night can be the highlight of a show. 
And Bertha, of course, is such a such a classic opening tune. And what I love about it is they debuted it as an opening tune, which is in my mind. And I know over the years they've played it in a lot of other places, but to me, it's always a first set opener tune, and I, it just sets the tone for such a great show. And what's funny about it, Jim, is that you know all these songs that you're mentioning as they play them, you know, initially there's no audience reaction. They're brand new. Audience doesn't know what to do with it. And by the end, the audience is roaring. You know, it's just that they, what a great night to have seen them. Yes. Yeah. And very historic show as well that it was uh, Mickey Hart's last show for three and a half years. Well, that's interesting too. Um, And if you think about it, that's a great, I mean, it's an unfortunate story, but it's really the heart of, you know, Grateful Dead folklore because it, it was a major transition, right? Originally, Mickey wasn't a drummer with them. He joined in, uh, I don't know what, year 66 maybe, um, and then, you know, played with them up until this moment. Uh, and then once again, but, you know, the, the constant uh, during all this time is uh, is Billy, the drummer back there, just hammering away. And I love Kreutzmann. I think that, you know, I mean, I, and don't get me wrong, I love Mickey Hart too. Um, but you know, when I, when I just have this mental image of the grateful dead in my brain, I always see Bill Kreutzmann back there just with his kind of cool, calm demeanor, you know, pushing it and leading it. But what people don't may not know, and, and, and this is, you know, however you want to look at it, uh, the song he's gone, um, is not about pig pen dying. It's not about anybody dying. Uh, it's about Mickey Hart's father running away after he served as the uh, accountant or financial advisor for the band and, and pilfered from them quite a bit of money, um, you know, through some types of fraud that he set up or whatever it was. And then he ran, he took off with the money. Um, Robert Hunter and Jerry wrote, he's gone because of that. Um, and, uh, you know, now, now the song he's gone has become synonymous with, uh, loss of whoever they, they, you know, people all thought it was for pig pen. And in fact, when I saw them in 2002, uh, at Alpine Valley, when they came back for the Terrapin family reunion, uh, the first night when they were all out on stage, they came out and they opened with an, uh, uh, an acoustic version of, um, not an acoustic, excuse me, a musical only version of he's gone. Uh, you know, it obviously, you know, a, a message to Jerry Garcia not being there with him. And, it, you know, it's very poignant and it's very beautiful and it has that ability to be used in that way. But that's not what it was about. <laughs> you know, and that was the reason Mickey Hart left the band for three and a half years. He was yep. so embarrassed that his father had embezzled from the band that he um, semi-retired up to his uh, ranch in Northern California. Um and then the last thing before we move on, we were talking about the well-crafted songs here from um, American Beauty, but also uh, Working Man's Dead. <clears throat> they were under considerable pressure from Warner Brothers just yes. that were not 20 minutes long and took up the whole side of an album. Right. Now, some right. of these songs right. are now, you know, three, four, five minutes that could get FM radio play back in the but even then, you know, even a, even a regular song that was four or five minutes was considered long by by that standards of those days. And uh, but you know, again, they were such beautiful tunes that I think that people just took a liking to them right away. Yep. Well, anyway, good musical chat, uh, good memories from back in the eighties at, at Red Rocks. I don't think I missed very many of the Red Rock shows, just one or two. Yep. But 
moving on to some marijuana news. Yes, sir. Uh, we're all still um, celebrating and happy that, uh, you know, we had five states come on board. I'm going to try to rattle them off. Medical marijuana in Mississippi, adult use in New Jersey and Arizona. And I've been hearing we're going to have preliminary regulations from Arizona and New Jersey very soon in the new year. Larry and I, whose business it is, uh, just like maybe back in the day when people would jump on a new album when it came out, when these marijuana regulations come out, Larry and I both jump on them and read them word for word. Um, And then we have uh, South Dakota, which is the first state to ever pass medical and adult use in the same bill or the same election. Mm -hmm. Montana. And is Montana medical or adult? Adult. It's Uh, yeah, it's adult. Because Montana already has medical, right? Yes, I believe they do. Yeah. All right. So um, Larry and I will have a busy new year. I um, will be spending my New Year's. Uh, counting marijuana, plants, and uh, finished goods at um, the better part of 10 different clients of ours. And you might say, why is that? Well, as the industry matures, more and more vertically integrated or larger operators are getting audited financial statements from firms like mine, Bridge West. Not exclusively, of course, but we at Bridge West, we do a lot of audits more and more all the time. And in order to have a clean opinion for the year 2021, you have to have your inventory observed as of the beginning of the year. And it doesn't have to be exactly on January 1st. So tomorrow I'll be flying to Aspen to, uh, I can give a plug to our good client in Aspen, uh, Silver Peak, they're right at the base of the gondola in Aspen. They literally serve you your joints on a silver tray. So I highly recommend (laughs) as soon as I'm done there, I have to go out to their cultivation a few miles away and count growth plants because part of the inventory for a medical or adult use marijuana business under generally accepted accounting principles is that the plants in the ground are treated like work in process and you do treat them as a valuable inventory and they go on your balance sheet as an asset. Um, Then back to Denver, I will squeeze in a ski day on Monday in Aspen since I'm going to be there. Where do you ski when you're in Aspen, Jim? Which, which, which one of the hills do you go to? I like them all. I like them all. Last time it was snow mass. Uh, This time, since I'm going to be downtown um, Aspen mountain, also known as Ajax, and it was very interesting. I was able to go online and buy my ticket, which uh, I won't even tell you what it cost. It was ridiculous because it's Christmas week, but I'm only going to be there one day. But they uh-huh. have drop boxes. They, they sent me one of those, um, you know, little black and white squares for your phone. Sure. Uh, what those are called. I don't know either, but I know what you mean. But I just go up to these boxes at the, at the base of the mountain and scan it, and the, uh, my lift ticket will pop out. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. No contact. Now, and how are they doing, though, in terms of um, – is it just wide open? Anyone can ski, or are they limiting the number of, of people who can go on the hill at any one time? You know what? Um, it's, I think it's one of those situations where you have to experience and know exactly what's going on. So uh-huh. I look forward to um, updating you all on that next time around. And then I've, as soon as I land 
in Denver on Wednesday, then I have to do go see five retail on Wednesday. I get the uh, 31st off. And then on January 1st and 2nd, I have to get up at five in the morning to count inventory at two retail shops before they open. So uh, wow. busy time of year for accountants. Um, but it's fun work and I enjoy it. I've been sitting at home here for a few days, so I'm kind of ready to uh, how does it go? get out of the door again. That's right. Get back trucking on. That's right. Down to the street all alone. You're on your way. Well, that's very nice, too. Now, one other thing that um, we were looking at that I thought was very interesting, and you and I were talking right before we came on uh, and started taping today, and it fits in what you were just talking about, is that our good friends over at uh, MJ Biz Daily um, published a chart the other day that shows marijuana cultivation licenses that were issued in calendar year 2020. And when I look at it, there's a couple of things about this that are really, really amazing to me, Jim. The first one is uh, that the state that had the largest number of cultivation licenses issued uh, in this calendar year is Oklahoma with 2,392 cultivation licenses issued. That's a lot of cultivation licenses for a relatively small state population-wise. Definitely. Uh, what's also amazing about that is that California only issued 2,304. Now, we would otherwise be saying, well, that's a lot, but it's California. But Oklahoma beat them by almost 100. <laughs> And you know, with, without the population, without the history or the tradition, I, I you know, it, it always amazes me. But I, I've got clients who are interested in Oklahoma. And, you know, the last time I looked, they said that prices in Oklahoma were holding steady. And I guess if they can figure out a way to maintain that, that's a good thing. But I, I just that just really uh, uh, that that's just incredible to me. Well, what's going on with the cultivators and we have a couple of dozen of those 2300 as clients of Bridge West. Mm -hmm. They have very, um, what I call boutique cultivations, you know, five, 10, 12,000 square feet. Yep. Some, you know, large, what I consider a large cultivation is 100,000 square feet. They may have those, mm -hmm. but I haven't seen them. Um, so I don't know. The Oklahoma business model t tends to lend itself to small craft style growers. When I say craft, I'm talking, you know, five, 10,000 square feet. Right. Yep, I got you. And yeah, it's still just, you know, I just see this as amazing. And then the third state is Michigan uh, with 333. But here's a, uh, what's interesting to me is that Michigan saw a 38% increase in total licenses that were issued this year. Now, don't forget, Michigan just went legal this year, right? Michigan had been medical, so they went legal. And all of a sudden, they saw a huge spike in the number of cultivation licenses that were issued. Now, here's the part about this map that makes me sad because there's one huge glaring hole in all of that, and that is that my state, Illinois, issued zero cultivation licenses in 2020. We have been an adult youth state as of the next week for one full calendar year. We had applications prepared and submitted on April 30th and nobody knows who won those licenses. And now we're being told that maybe possible that they might consider sometime in January making the announcements as to who won the cultivation licenses, which of course means we're six to seven months out before anybody is going to be able to make a difference in the market anyway. But I just, I'm, 
I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm upset. I'm embarrassed. Uh, I feel bad for my clients who have put in so much time and money um, and are really hanging on by a thread as they try to negotiate with their landlords to continue to hold contingencies on the properties uh, that they submitted with their licenses. Um, wow. and it, it's just a disaster. And when you see it like this, uh, you know, Colorado issued 57 licenses, Oregon, 107, Florida issued a license for God's sakes, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. And this does not just have to be uh, uh, adult use. It's, it's medical or adult use. Um, Minnesota issued two, Illinois, zero, 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 zero. And, um, you know, they're going to have to really pick up the pace with this. And it's not just enough to say we have the second most populous state in the country that has adult use after California when uh, the state of Oklahoma just issued 2,300 more licenses than you. Wow. And <clears throat> what does that mean for prices for the consumer in Illinois? Well, what I can tell you is it means that right now there's obviously no competition on any substantial level. So medical prices are $60 for an eighth. Uh, adult use prices are 80 to 85 or $90 for an eighth. Um, and that's pretty consistent. Uh, same thing with extracts. Uh, a gram of extract at a medical facility goes for right around $60, the high-end stuff for $70. And when you go to adult use, you can add another $20 or $25 to the price. Um, but th those prices have remained consistent. Uh, and, you know, I, I I don't see them dropping anytime soon. We were paying $60 for an eighth in the medical dispensary even before adult use came on board here. Um, and quite frankly, that's one of the biggest concerns of everybody is that the medical license holders seem to have a pretty firm grip on this market. And, you know, there's lots of speculation as to whether or not uh, there aren't contributions being made to politicians to, you know, delay or slow down the advent of the rest of the adult use market so that these guys can continue to really, you know, just ring it in. And they are. Our, our, our sales in Illinois go through the roof month after month after month. And right now, all of that sales is being divided up among roughly about 50 or 55 adult use dispensaries located throughout the state. And there's 75 licenses sitting on ice that should have been announced on April 1st that we still don't know the answer to for dispensary. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a real, real problem. And we're really feeling it here. And, uh, you know, there's some real hope that you know, somebody after the first of the year will see the light of day and understand that this is benefiting nobody um, except the handful of lawyers, of course, that are doing all the litigating. And I'm a, one of the lawyers, I'm not doing any litigating because I'm conflicted out with, with clients who did get licenses and clients who didn't. Um, so it kind of puts me in a, in a trick box there. But, you know, this, this does nothing, the litigation does nothing but ultimately hurt the industry by delaying the rollout of all these new licenses. Yes. And I imagine you have a thriving black market as well. Well, we do, which is both, you know, good if you're a customer of it, but unfortunate if you're, you know, have a financial interest in the industry, because the truth is uh, that without too much effort, it is very, very easy to obtain uh, an ounce of very, very good Colorado or California flour for $200, $250 an ounce, which is just about half off of what you're paying for an ounce uh, at an adult use dispensary. 
for marijuana that's good. I give the, the cultivators here credit. They've grown some good strains, but, you know, they don't compare to the stuff that comes in from California that's, you know, the – the you know the the heart of the stuff are from Colorado with guys who have been cultivating for fifteen years. Yeah, our market has really stabilized nicely in twenty twenty. You know, strong demand for the product because people staying home because of COVID and having unemployment checks coming in, and um, we have you know unlimited licenses. As I've been saying on the show many times, you can walk into our marijuana enforcement division with a clean record and a check that clears. And within a couple of weeks, you'll have a license in hand. Yep. Even, but even with unlimited license and a really basically free market, our uh, wholesale prices have stabilized right around $2,000 a pound. So if you're going for $500 a pound at your cost, uh, you're, you're getting the three for that you need to be profitable in this business. Yep. And then um, the retailers can double that. And still sell ounces for anywhere between, you know, seventy-five dollars for shake up to two hundred and fifty dollars for for high end is kind of where our prices are. And that's amazing, right? You know, and, and thirty a lot of twenty-five and thirty-dollar ace and thirty-dollar vape pens. So, well, hopefully anyway. we'll hopefully we'll get there someday. Um, and you know, while I certainly. Uh, support my uh my license holding clients uh maximizing their earnings as a uh, user and a customer in the market as well uh, i would certainly welcome the kind of prices that you're talking about out there and i think it would make the illinois industry that much stronger because it would keep a lot of the business in-house instead of wandering outdoors to the black market yep so well we're coming to the end of our time slot um yes sir i'll have lots more to talk about here uh next week uh when i get back from um Aspen and doing all these inventory counts around Colorado. So, um, yep. And we'll have uh, a, a Bobby and Wolf Brothers show to talk about and uh, whatever other wonderful music uh, comes out over, uh, over New Year's. Um, we'll all be great. And, um, you know, like I say, we'll be rolling into a new year with some of these new states and uh, it can be very, very exciting watching this industry just continue to grow. Very good. All right. Well, this is Jim Marty saying over and out from Longmont, Colorado. Thank you very much, Jim. As always, it's a pleasure to uh, have an opportunity to chat with you. Um, to uh, all of our listeners, a very, very happy new year, a very healthy new year. And hopefully 2021 uh, is a nice step up from 2020 for all of us. And uh, we all move in the right direction with that. Um, otherwise, this is Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group saying, uh, Goodbye. We'll talk to you next week. And uh, over New Year's, enjoy your cannabis, but enjoy it responsibly. Thank you very much. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, 
cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.